0: The ground. Let's give another big hand. Another. I've heard one preachers say after presentation such as that that we should just pronounce the benediction and go on. Right. I've never heard one actually do it. And <laughs> I'm not going to do it either, but uh, that, that, touched my, that touched my heart. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Well, last time the revival seems like we just got started. I feel like I know so many of you. I've met so many new friends and I appreciate you being here. I've got some special people I'd like to introduce tonight. My sister Myron Singley is here. Would you stand up over there in the corner? She's a good looking woman. And And our two high school friends, Deborah Hanson and Mary Johnson. people have known me literally every day of my life, so I have to tell the truth tonight because they will stand up and call me on the and promise And also, my minister, Dr. Dave Benson from the First United Methodist Church in Conyers, is here. Dave and I have learned this week that the really good preachers travel with an entourage, and we can't afford an entourage. He's going to go with me, and I'm going to go with him. David, you stand
1: up.
0: <laughs> and Tom Brown, I know he was itching to get up on the stage because he's a guitar man himself. himself. Well, it's just so good to be I can Yeah.
1: tonight.
0: Mike gave me so much grief yesterday about having on my Sears sucker suit that I just wore this night him. <laughs> I was, I was real. It's the real, real men wear, wear pink, you know, so right. But I'm gonna take it off and, and go to go to work now. Would you go with me to the Lord in prayer? Oh precious Heavenly Father. Thank you for many blessings of this day. Thank you for every person gathered here. To hear your word proclaimed. Thank you for the many gifts you have given to each and every person here. And for the next few minutes, dear Lord, I would ask that you empty me of me. Fill me with your spirit, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart shall be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my God strength, my rock, and my redeemer. Amen. Our scripture tonight uh, is a psalm of David. David was an adulterer. David was a liar. David was a murderer of source. And yet David was a man after God's own heart. So there's hope for me. Amen. Amen. This is one of the most beloved verses uh, in the scriptures, Psalms 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. Shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thank you, God. And I'm going to ask if somebody could, if I could get a glass of water or something. I think my mouth's going to be dry before I get through. Well, tonight I'm going to tell you more about Darrell Huckabee than I would care for you to know. Uh, but I think it's necessary, uh, to get the point across of what my message is tonight. As I told you, I was raised in Porterdale, a little mill village in North Georgia near here. I'm on Lynn Head, I'm proud of it. Porterdale was a great place to be raised. My sisters back here, uh, you know, we used to take a bath every Saturday night, whether we needed it or not. You've all heard that joke, but it was the truth. And we would take a bath. We didn't have a pet tub, uh, but we would take baths in a galvanized tin tub when we were little, when we were real little. and my mama would heat the water on the stove, and when Myron got a little bit older, she needed modesty, you know, mama would put her clothes on up around the tub and put towels up, and she would always get to go first because she's oldest, And she would always stay in the tub until the water got cold, and then it was my turn. But I have forgiven her. Forgiveness Forgiveness is a great, great thing. But you know, when I got to the University of Georgia and took sociology, my professor found out that I was raised in a mill village and announced to the entire class, Mr. Huckabee was raised in poverty in a North Georgia mill village. My professor was obviously educated far beyond his intelligence. (laughs) We weren't poor in Porterdale, we just didn't have any money. And there's a big difference, let me tell you. I had a great childhood. My three children have been everywhere and done everything. I wouldn't trade my childhood with theirs for anything in the world. We had the run of that village. We could be out the door as soon as it got daylight and we didn't have to be back home until the street lights came on or until our mama called us home for supper and i could still hear my mother's voice at the back door calling me and sometimes if i was having a real good time or doing something that i wanted to do i would act like i didn't hear her and i wouldn't come home and that's when she would use that middle name. I believe that God gave Southerners middle name for when they got in trouble. When she called Daryl Lee Buckerby, I knew I better get home. And I would stand there at the back door looking down at my feet and she'd say, boy, didn't you hear me calling you? I'd say, yes, ma'am. She'd say, why didn't you answer me? Now, I never had anything to say to that she said, go cut me a switch. And uh, then it would get interesting. But that's the kind of childhood I had. Uh, I had a great, great life. Um, went to the University of Georgia on a basketball scholarship, actually. I was the manager of the Southeastern Conference. That changed that for 50 years. <laughs> and became a teacher. I taught history for 40 years. Uh, I got to be a writer. Uh, write a syndicated newspaper column the last 20 years, and a number of papers across the South. You know, I used to say that when I started writing, about one was a uh, But now it's in a bunch of papers, and I've, I've published 10 or 12 books, and, and uh, I've had a very, 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 very good life. But for a long part of my life, I was kind of out of sorts with myself because, I wasn't actually being obedient to God entirely. I wasn't fulfilling what I believe is His purpose for placing me on this earth. And that's kind of what my story is about tonight. Four years ago, October 21st, four years ago, I fell out of a tree. I thought it would be a good, good idea to climb up on a step ladder with a chainsaw and uh, I don't know why I thought that would be a good idea, and cut a limb off. And the limb fell back and knocked me off the ladder and um, knocked me out. And I had to go to the doctor for all sorts of tests and evaluations. They did a full body MRI, making sure nothing was damaged and did all sorts of tests. And that was the end of that. But I tell you that because they examined my head and didn't find anything, they examined my body. I was healthy. I know for a fact I was completely healthy. The next January, I started feeling bad, and I started going to the doctor, and they did all kinds of tests. They did every blood test you could think of. They couldn't find anything wrong with me. I had constant stomach aches. Uh, I just didn't feel good. I was being drugged down all the time. And I kept going to different doctors and they really just couldn't find anything wrong with me. Again, I tell you that because I know that in January uh, of 2010 or 11, whichever year it was, I was, I was perfectly fine. They had done a blood test, everything was fine with me. Finally, I kept complaining because I hurt so much that they decided to take my gallbladder out uh, because that's what they do if they can't figure out anything that's wrong with just <laughs> They take your gallbladder out. And this is where the story starts. It was May, uh, 25th, the end of May. Uh, I was in the hospital getting the pre cert to um, doing all the paperwork and getting my blood drawn and everything for the surgery that was going to take place uh, the next day. Well, uh, the next week, rather. Well, I've been to the doctor for my regular checkup that week. Thank God for my lovely white visa because I wasn't going to go for my annual physical because I've been to the doctor over and over and over and had everything checked uh, all winter so there was no need to go and have it done again but she said no you need to do it as a schedule go ahead and go through it so I went through it got my blood drawn I hate getting my blood drawn I don't like needles so that was that I was sitting in the hospital and my cell phone rang. I looked down and it was my doctor calling me on his cell phone. That's a bad thing on a Friday afternoon to get a call from your doctor, a personal call from your doctor, and who happens to be a good friend. I answered it and uh, he said, Where are you? What are you doing? I said, Well, I'm at the hospital uh, getting pre-surgery to get this gallbladder taken out. And he said, Well, I've got some news that's going to take your mind off your gallbladder. I said, well good, let me have it. He said, your BSA results came back and I'm certain that you have prostate cancer. He was right. That took my mind right off my gallbladder. He said, your BSA has gone from zero on January 15th to uh, 12 uh, on May the 15th and that's uh, that's not good. So we need to go next week uh, and get a biopsy. So I said, okay, and uh, hung up. Now, I really wasn't concerned. I really wasn't concerned because I had heard every lie there is about prostate cancer. People had told me, oh, prostate cancer is nothing. More men, more men died with prostate cancer than from Prostate cancer, if you're gonna have cancer, that's the kind to have. Let me tell y'all something. There ain't no good kind of cancer <laughs> to have. I promise you that. But my father-in-law had had prostate cancer. He had gone to the doctor and got some seeds implanted, and then for 30 days he did radiation treatments, and he was fine. And I, you know, and when I went to the doctor, Get my biopsy. I was just upset because I was going to have to, in my mind, I was going to have to stay around Conyers for 30 days and go get the stupid radiation treatments with those seeds. I just turned up what they did for everybody. Do y'all know how important I am? Do y'all know how many things I have to do? I can't stay 30 days around Conyers. That's what I was thinking. So my thoughts changed when I did that biopsy. If any of y'all ever had a prostate biopsy, let me tell you something. I'm not going to get political tonight. But if I were President of the United States, we could close Juan more back. Because I just have every one of those terrorists have a prostate biopsy, and I guarantee they'd tell everything they knew. I know there are a lot of ladies in the crowd, but I'm going to tell you they put you up on a table
1: on your hands
0: and knees. And they take this machine and they insert it where machines were never intended <laughs> to be inserted. And it's a big machine. And the nurse stands over in the corner and she says, Relax, relax. I say, relax, you get up here and you, do this and you do. relax. And then they start shooting little needles into you, and the needles grab pieces of your flesh. And bring it back. It was the worst thing I've ever experienced. 14 times they did that. And then when I got through, they said, We'll come back next week and get your results. And I don't know if I'll be able to get back ever. It was, it was awful. Well, we came back the next week, and quite frankly, I still wasn't that concerned because I've Heard all about prostate cancer, and everybody says it's not a big deal. Well, the doctor came in and he said, Mr. doctor I've got some bad news. He said, You have a very, very, very aggressive type of prostate cancer. He said, Your Gleason score is at the highest level. It's in all four quadrants of your prostate. It's just really, really bad. And we're going to have to do the surgery as soon as we can. And I said, well, okay, let's do surgery. I said, we're about to see. He said, no, 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 you're not in candidate for that, you don't understand. You've got a very aggressive, uh, it's really bad. We've got to do the surgery as soon as we can. I said, well, let's set it up. He said, well, okay, August 26th. I said, I thought you said I had to have surgery as soon as I could." I said, well, that's as soon as I can. And uh, he said, you have to allow it so, so many weeks for your body to heal because of the biopsy. And What kind of test is that? But it takes three months to heal from this test. But he said, now, you've got a lot of scar tissue from previous surgeries, and we're going to have to operate the old-fashioned way. And uh, we're going to have to cut you open, and you'll be in hospital for eight or ten days, and you'll be at home for eight weeks. And I'm thinking, if he operates on me on April 26th, and I'm home for eight weeks, that's gonna carry me all the way to the Florida game. I couldn't have that. <laughs> uh, I can't be at home during football season. I wanted another opinion. And uh, I was real worried too. I wasn't confident about the doctor cutting me open. And I knew that they had this new type of, of, of you know, radio, radio machine, um, robotic surgery. Uh, the benching machine, I'd asked about that and he said he just, I wasn't a candidate because I had so much scar tissue. And so I was in a, a foul mood uh, as the summer progressed. And then at Salem Camp Meeting, my friend Dr. Carter Rogers told me about a surgeon he knew in Atlanta named Dr. Scott Miller who was supposed to be the guru of the, the, the benchy robotic prostate surgery. When you look up on the internet, he was the guy, This picture was on the on the machine. He was the guy. Everybody wants to have the best doctor. You know, I've never heard anybody brag, I got the seventh best doctor in my <laughs> <laughs> Thank you Everybody wants the best. So we made an appointment, Mr. Carter, was in an appointment with Dr. Miller. And on July the 15th, which is, uh, I guess, tomorrow, because it was my wife's birthday, it was a Friday camp meeting. Uh, I had a bad camp meeting that year. Uh, we went to Atlanta to see Dr. Scott Miller, and we we walked into his office, going this big penthouse and in, uh, in uh, Buckhead up there. I found out why, uh, when he told me how much he was going to charge. But he didn't even inspect me or look at me or anything. He just, I can do it. I said, well, how do you know it's do it? He had extreme confidence in himself. And that's what you want to have. He talked to us for about two hours. He wanted me to know how I could help his uh, daughter pass APUS history was the main thing he wanted to talk to me about. <laughs> he already hardly even talked to me about the surgery. But then he said, well, I guess you got to know about the surgery, we can do it on August 6th. And um, we can, I guess that was 2011, August 6th, 2011 and uh it'll take about two hours maybe three at the most and um we'll get you all fixed up and then he said well i guess i need to tell you you won't be able to perform sexually for about eight or nine months i said oh that's not a problem we don't perform now we do all that in
1: private He said, no,
0: no, 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 you don't understand. You won't be able to have sex for about eight or nine months. My wife leaves with me. She said, I'll pay you double as minute. <laughs> so we had the surgery on August 6th. It took nine hours because he wasn't as good as he thought, and my scars were worse than he thought. So after nine hours in the operating room, uh, he said that it was the worst intact process that he'd ever seen. That was the bad news, but he said it was was intact, and that was the good news, and he thought that everything was fine. So I stayed in the hospital a day or so and sent me home. August 16th, these dates are important to me, and I remember them real well. 10 days later, August 16th, he he called me back at home uh, on my own cell phone at night, and he said, well, we've got your lab results back. Cancer is contained," he said. "Congratulations, August 16th. You can mark down as the date that you are cancer free." Now I remember that date because that's the day that Elvis died. So that's um, <laughs> good. it would be easy to remember. And uh, he said, "But I hate it when they say but." He said, "But we got to take a PSA just to make sure." So he set up a PSA test and the next day. Three days later, Dr. Miller called me back, and he said, Mr. Huckley, I've got some bad news. I, I was getting tired of hearing that. He said, your PSA didn't really go down like it was supposed to. it was still pretty high. So maybe we just didn't wait long enough to do the test. I want you to wait another week and go back next week and get another PSA test. So I waited another week and went back, and um, the very next day he called me and said, Mr. Huckley, I've got some Bad news. This is going to be like a broken record. He said, "Your PSA has tripled in the last week. We've got a serious problem. The uh, the cancer has already escaped. The um, uh, had already escaped the capsule in a microscopic form before we did the surgery, and uh, we're going to have to have some radiation." And he said, we're gonna to have to have some radiation. I don't know where he got his. He never did come to where I was getting mine. <laughs> but a funny thing happened in the meantime. Uh, some friends of mine read that um, I'd been invited about a year ago to speak to this big uh, dinner up at Sugar Hill, a wild game dinner at Sugar Hill Baptist Church. Um, and they had read that I was having surgery. And I'm not, I'm, I'm not really organized. And I had put on my calendar that they were gonna have that that meeting on September 20th, on a Thursday night. That was on my calendar. And just before I had surgery, the guy from the church called to make sure that I was still gonna be able to make that meeting. And I said, oh yeah, no problem, no problem. 20th, it won't be a problem, I'll be fine. He said, okay, we'll see you on August 20th and hung up. Well, August 20th was a little bit different. Because I was still wearing a catheter on August 20th, and uh, look, I wasn't gonna cancel after that, uh, so much bravado. So I got my friend to drive me to Sugar Hill, and i put come some real blue spinning pants, and I put that bag on my knee, and uh, there I was, and I took two garbage to sets before I went in, and, <laughs> and I, they led me to the stage, and I told them, I said, look here now, I'm wearing a catheter strapped to my leg. And if I tell you that we need every head bowed and every eye closed, sure enough now we need every head bowed and every eye closed. <laughs> but I gotta do some adjusting. And I don't remember what I said, I don't have any recollection, but they say I knocked them dead. I took another car instead and went home. That I always got started on the wrong path. I realized that. Well, I went to get my radiation and I showed up at the place. And they said you've got to have, um, we don't know exactly where the cancer is, we just know that it's loose somewhere and uh, so we're going to give you five doses each day for 40 days. And I went back and there were four, five young ladies in the room. Two of them had been my students and you never want to go in and see your former students in that situation. And so they explained what they were going to do, and they told me to get undressed and lay up on the table. So I said, okay, just waiting for them to leave the room. I said, well, go ahead, get undressed, get up on the table. And I said, well, aren't you going to leave? No, we're going to stay here. And uh, I said, well, can I have a towel or something? She gave me a little cocktail napkin. (laughs) I said, don't have anything bigger than this? She said, that's big enough, trust (laughs) me. The bad thing is, she was right. I got her from the bedroom and they came in and started drawing all over a sharpie. And these were people I knew, I had taught them. It was just weird. And then they came in and said, what are you going to do next? And she said, we're going to give you tattoos. I said, I want a mermaid. And they didn't give me a mermaid, they tattooed all over my body. And so for the next uh, several months, I went in every day, Monday through Friday, and got five doses. Of radiation. And then, and that's not a pleasant experience. Uh, One dose is bad enough, but five a day is, according to my math, I didn't go to Georgia Tech, but according to my math, there's over (laughs) 200 doses of radiation. And uh, so I was through that, I got to ring the bell, and and I was excited, uh, but I felt terrible. And I went back to my PSA test and the doctor called me in and she was crying. She said, Mr. Huckabee, your, your PSA has gone up astronomically during this radiation. It's, we've lost control of it. And you've got to go somewhere else. We can't do anything for you. So we went down to the Mayo Clinic. We went to Emory University Hospital. We went to Northside Hospital. And everybody goes the same thing. We are so sorry. You have a very rare type of very, very aggressive um, prostate cancer, that has into your bones and we just can't give you uh, any hope. You probably have five or six good months left and uh, you need to make sure all of your affairs are in order. And that's three, pretty good places National Clinic and Emory and Northside. And I'm going to tell you, I was the myself. And this is where the, the scripture lesson comes in. Everything up until now has just been the story of my illness. But shortly after I was told that I had a spark of radiation, I was over in Athens at a celebrity golfer even though I'm not a celebrity or very good golfer, they invite me over every year and I couldn't play. I was just riding around in the golf park with my friend Buddy Neal. And Buddy Neal said to me, I hear that you have cancer. And I said, well that's true, I do. And he said, well I haven't read about it in any of your columns. I said, oh Lord no, I wouldn't write about that in a column. It's way too personal. And I thought he was going to say something very sympathetic to me. And he looked at me and said, you sure are selfish. I said, do what? He said, you're selfish. I said, how can you call me selfish? He said, there are thousands and thousands of people who read your column several times a week who would love to pray for you. And you're not letting." And then he pointed to a big boulder on the side of the golf course. And he said, if I asked you to go and move that boulder, would you go there and do it by yourself? I said, no, I couldn't move that boulder by myself. It's too heavy. He said, well, what would you do? I said, I'd get everybody I knew to help you move it. And, and he said, well, what you're carrying is a lot bigger load than a boulder. And you need to ask people to help you carry And I wrote about my cancer that weekend in the Athens Banner Herald and some of the other papers I write in, and immediately I felt that I could feel the power of prayer. And that's not just something I'm saying because I'm standing up here in front of you. It is the truth. But I didn't get immediately better. January, February, March of 2012 were probably the well, a probably without a doubt that was the worst period of my life because I had been given a death sentence. I had been told that I was going to die within five or six months. I don't know if any of you ever heard those words. It wasn't easy for me to deal with. Now, I'm a Christian, I'm born again a born-again Christian, and I knew that I was going to go to heaven, but I wasn't ready to go to heaven then. There was too much else that I wanted to see happening her, and I wasn't living in full obedience to God. So I went to bed at night, and I would cry myself to sleep every night, and I couldn't even find the words to pray. But that's okay, because the Bible tells us that if we can't find the words, that the Holy Spirit Pray on our behalf through our moans and groans. And that's the way I was for about three months. I would go to bed now during the day, how are you? Fine, fine, everything's fine. But everything wasn't fine. Uh, I was scared and I was not at peace. Uh, and there was just so much turmoil. I had three kids who were still in college. Uh, or had just finished college Uh, and as I said my life was not where it was supposed to be. Finally I just started every night reciting prayers by rote memory that my parents had taught me when I was a little boy that I had learned in Bible school and Sunday school at the First United Methodist Church and one of them was the 23rd psalm i would say it every night and that brought me so much peace and i would pray it as a prayer many many times during the day i would would say the apostles Creed to myself every night i had a liturgy i pray the lord's prayer i would say the 23rd psalm out loud i would say the apostles Creed out loud i would even say now i lay me down to sleep and say that prayer so God will know that I had accepted him in case he had forgotten, in case I died. And during my sleep and there were lot of nights that I wished I would die because I was in so much pain and so much agony and, and, and things were so bad. And that's the way I was. I was correct inside. On the outside I got up, I continued to teach school, I went to school every day, I didn't miss a day of school during the radiation Uh, because I didn't think that the school would operate if I wasn't there. And I was supposed to be this macho coach and strong. But inside I was a wreck. And the reason, the primary reason was this. When I was 12 years old, God called me to preach the gospel. I don't mean that I felt a nudge in that direction. I mean there was a voice as clear as I am speaking to you tonight saying I want you to preach the gospel I was called to preach and I said no I don't mean I missed my calling I mean I said flat no I don't want to do that I don't want to give control of my life to you because I like being in control of my life. I've seen where some of those preachers have to live. I've seen some of those Methodist parsonages. I might be married, an ugly woman. Who knows? Um, <laughs> if I known all preachers wives looked like Teresa and Kid, I might have said yes. Hey. <laughs> but I just said no. Now I kept being a good person. I kept speaking and teaching and talking about God when I started writing I would write about God when I was asked to speak and entertain and I've entertained all over the country. Um, I would always put a little um, um, illustration at the end that that had a a good word and I would throw a bone to God but I wasn't going to give my life to him and be obedient to him and be a preacher. I just wasn't going to do that. When I graduated from Georgia, when I was a senior, I still knew that that's what I was called to do. And so during my senior year at the University of Georgia, I went to county school of theology on campus at Emory and applied to start uh, theology school in the fall. And we got it all straightened out that summer and I was supposed to start in the fall. And when the day came, I got cold feet. I don't mean that I called them up and said I had changed my mind. I mean there were three professors on that campus calling my name in their class, and I just wasn't there. And I taught and coached and had a splendid career, but it wasn't what I was supposed to be doing with my life According to God's call. And as I was laying there during these terrible, terrible months, I would think to myself, you know, I'm going to meet Jesus face to face soon. We all are. But the doctors had tried to tell me exactly when I was going to meet Jesus. And I said, you know, it's going to be like my mom when I would not answer her when she called me to supper.'" I was going to face Jesus, and he was going to say, Didn't you hear me calling you, boy? And I had nothing to say. And Jesus doesn't have a switch. He has a winnowing rod. And I, I was... And so, during the course of all this upheaval in my life, I made a promise to God. I didn't make a deal with God. I made a promise to God that... Whatever time I had left, I would preach the gospel at every opportunity. Now, I didn't say you'll let me get well, it was, you did. I just said whatever time I got left, I will somehow be obedient to your call and I will preach the gospel. At about the same time I was making this decision, we were able to get an appointment at Indy Anderson in Houston, Texas. And on April 2nd in 2012, we've over to 2012 now, we went out to um, Houston, Texas to MD Anderson. They did the test, they came back, and said, Mr. Huckabee, um, there's a 99% chance that you will expire within the next 45 months. But, this time the but was a positive, but we work with the 1% here. And we can do this, and if that doesn't work, in fact, it probably won't. We'll do this, and then we'll do this, and then we'll do this. We're gonna put your name on every experimental disc that you wanna be on, every test case, and we will work with you as long as you wanna keep coming. They gave me Uh, We talked about what I would try first, and they gave me infusions, and after we'd been there a few days, they sent us home. And when I left that place, I was, for the first time maybe in my life, at least since I was 12 years old, completely at peace, because I had made my peace with God, and medically I had done everything that I could do. So I came home and I started having conversations with my minister, other ministers, our district superintendent. They started looking for routes for me to take uh, to answer that call. There are no shortcuts in the Methodist Church as uh, I say here, amen. amen. And uh, so really we said there's no reason, the bishop said there's no reason you to go to the seminary, the doctors were saying I wasn't going to live long enough and I probably wasn't physically able. but I, um, you know, became a certified lay speaker and I wasn't called to go to committee meetings and do budgets anyway, I was called to preach, and we started putting the word out, Uh, I'm not going to tell you everything that's happened to me since then, but I will say that in the last three years, I have preached in three hundred and seventeen churches in one home
1: <laughs> I have
0: shared God's word with thousands and thousands of people. Uh, we went back to Indiana, and after 90 days, the doctor said, Well, we're going to do the test now. The, 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 this, this treatment was just something they require us to do. Don't get upset when it didn't work, but we're going to start experimental stuff now did a PSA test, and in two hours they came back, yeah, that's the way they do it in Indiana, in two hours they came back and they said, Mr. Huckby, we don't have any explanation that your PSA is zero. Your PSA is zero. I've done that 15 times every 90 days, just like clockwork. And every ninety days they come in and said, We have no explanation for this, but your PSA is zero. And I said, I don't need an explanation. Not the last time, but the time before last the doctor came in. I came into his office and he had charts all over his head. It looked like it was making him mad because I was <laughs> doing good. <laughs> he said, I've been through every case for the last twenty years and haven't there's no reasons you should be here. I said, well, apparently there is. <laughs> and the last time he said, well, I'm not a man of faith, but there's no medical explanation for why you are still here. And I told him again, God made this time, you became a man of faith. Uh, let me tell you the things I don't know. I don't know why I'm doing as well as I'm doing and other people who have been in my situation died or failed. I don't know because I know that other people have had people pray for them. I know that other people have been as fervent as I have in their prayers. I don't know. I don't know. I'm like a blind man. All I know is doctors in four states told me that I was going to die within six months. And in the last three years, let me tell you what I've done. In the last three years, I've seen two of my children get married. And God bless you, this Till August 22nd, I'm going to see the third one get married. I've seen my grandchild born and baptized. And as I told you on Sunday, he's the most precious grandchild in the history of grandchildren. <laughs> I have started a tour company and I've taken over a thousand people to 15 foreign nations in 36 states. And I have preached the gospel, as I said, in 317 churches and a honky tonk. Now, I wish I had gone to seminary because I've been through by now. <laughs> and
1: I keep wondering, maybe I should start.
0: But I guess it's. it's um, be better to be anointed by God than ordained by the United Methodist Church, I don't know. But I'm going to keep sharing my testimony and I'm going to keep preaching the word of God to anybody that will listen. And the point I'm trying to make is as long as I was living in disobedience to God, I never had true peace in my life. But ever since the day That I made that decision to give my life totally to Christ, and I was a Christian. I was a practicing Christian. But I have tried to serve Him in total obedience, and my life, I am at perfect peace. And if God called me home tonight, I would not have a single Regret. There's only one way you can have that much peace in your life, and that is to surrender your life to Jesus Christ. To accept Him as your Savior, which many of us have done, but also to accept Him as the Lord of your life. To give your life to Him. And if you've not made that decision, and I urge you to do that. Here once again, the words of King David as I heard them during the deepest turmoil. And let me say this, I still have stage four cancer. The cancer is in my bones. It's not going anywhere. They don't have any way to heal it. I have lots and lots of problems from the drugs and the things that they give me. But I made up my mind that I wasn't gonna get up every day and have to decide if I was gonna go do something that day. I wasn't gonna have to make that decision 365 times a year. I just said I'm gonna get up every day and go about my life. And so that's what I have done. But I'm following a new leader. I'm no longer following myself following the Lord. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want And I have not wanted anything. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. It is so good to have your soul restored. He leads me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for God is with me. His rod and staff, they do come with me. He prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. He anointeth my heaven with oil. Hear this, my cup truly brother, it Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow all the days. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord For Someone said what is forever? What is eternal? It's the last thing I'll say. I heard an old preacher say one time that if you can imagine the sands of the Atlantic Ocean and the Pacific Ocean if a seagull picked up one grain of sand and flew all the way around the world and deposited that grain of sand on the Pacific side of the country, flew back to the Atlantic and got another grain of sand and flew all the way around the world and put it on the Pacific coast, that when that bird got from moving every grain of sand on the Atlantic to the Pacific, it would barely be good daybreak in eternity. Shall we pray? Oh, precious, precious Lord, blessed Lord, we give you thanks. Thank you for this revival meeting this week. Thank you for the hearts that have been touched and the souls that have been strengthened. Thank you for the healing power of Jesus Christ. And dear God, if there's anybody here tonight who is out of sorts with you, who is not in obedience to you,
1: we ask that that person would be touched by the Holy Spirit tonight,
0: that they would know the love of Jesus Accept Christ as their Savior and as their Lord and find that peace, that perfect peace that passes all, all, all human understanding. In the holy and precious name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.